Welcome to Grief Recovery Now. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This weekly podcast is being produced just for you, someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, or the many other ways we experience grief. I can assure you that this series will help you break through some of the most difficult parts of your grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, you can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Welcome to Grief Recovery Now. Hello, this is Charlene Gorzella, and welcome to the launch of Grief Recovery Now. It is quite the time in our world and never a better time to launch this type of podcast. My hope is that you sit back and take it all in. Take what you want and leave the rest. Because it is our launch, I thought I would share a little bit on the how and why I decided to dive into this particular work and podcast. Having had 26 years as an owner of a thriving, very in people-intensive staffing agency, I realized that one of the characteristics of that work was working with our staff, candidates, and clients who shared with me the good, the bad, and the ugly about their lives. Throughout the years, I have witnessed losses through death, divorce, and the many losses we all go through in life. I have learned, especially now, to be a heart with ears. Personally, I have grieved my parents in sudden death, beloved pet loss, divorce, and even grieved a loss of identity when I sold my business in 2017. With all that said, now that I work in grief recovery, I know that grief and unresolved grief has affected many of us in more ways than we know. It being our launch, I decided to have a special guest, Jay Westbrook, who played a big role in introducing me to a career in grief recovery. I will be forever grateful for that turning point in my life and to my sister Marlene, who suggested I contact him. Jay Westbrook is an award-winning end-of-life clinician sought-after speaker and author of Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying. One of his reviewers said it was an amazing, profound, and moving, inspirational collection of powerful standalone stories shared in the narrative style of Native Americans. I personally could not put it down. I read it in two nights. He is also an award-winning clinician as a hospice nurse, advanced grief recovery specialist, and clinical gerontologist. On a personal side, Jay is a survivor of profound incest and torture and is now helping women and men move from victim to survivor. He is also a sober man and grateful to be in his fourth decade of continuous sobriety and recovery, living a life based in the service of others. And I've witnessed this. This guy is of service. Jay, a devoted husband, now a widower of his beloved wife, Nancy. I love one of his quotes that says, the pain with which I wake and walk is a small price to pay for a lifelong love affair. 
Now, how beautiful is that? Jay, welcome. Well, thank you. And how are you feeling about life in general during this time, during the coronavirus age, which we'll talk about it later. It's part of our podcast. It's called Grief, Life, and the Coronavirus. That's going to be our title of this particular podcast. I feel blessed. I'm a little disappointed. I had seven national conferences at which I was scheduled to speak, and they all got canceled, and only one of them has switched to an online conference. So there were a lot of opportunities to educate, to share, to lead people in this arena of grief recovery that disappeared. But all those conferences, I'm sure, will be back next year, and we will, we will be there then. Great. And, get, and knowing you, you're a man whose life is about service and love. So I'm sure you're just itching to help people because I know you help the individual in your work. And also you will help other clinicians, not just doctors. You help doctors, other grief support specialists. You're very active in the Grief Recovery Institute. You are very well loved and liked and so thrilled again that you're on the show. Thank you. Now, I thought I'd talk about what is grief? Can you talk about a little bit what grief is? I know there's a lot of labels people put on grief. You know, they could say, oh, it's depression. Oh, I'm feeling too much pressure or whatever it can be. Can you explain what is grief? I think the simplest explanation is to simply say that grief is the normal and natural reaction to loss. The normal and natural reaction to loss. When I give that definition, people sometimes furrow their brows and, and look and they're, they're waiting to hear the D word. Well, doesn't it have something to do with death and dying? And, and of course it does. But the truth is that, that grief is the normal and natural reaction to loss. And there are so many losses that we experience outside of the death of somebody that we love. Even around the death of somebody we love, there may be a whole set of losses involved how how we behaved around their loss. I never showed up. I was too busy at work or I showed up, but I didn't say the things I wanted to say or losses that have absolutely nothing to do with the death of a person. It might be the death of a pet. It might be the loss of of dreams and and hopes and expectations. It might be a divorce. It might be moving. It might be not getting into the university that you hope to get into or finding, getting in and finding you don't have the aptitude to pursue the major that you wanted to pursue. And graduation from high school and you're leaving behind all of your friends and everything that's familiar. And it's wonderful to have graduated, but there's also a sense of loss. And this year, there's going to be the additional loss of having dreamed for 12 years of that day and walking across a stage and getting a diploma. And that's not going to happen this year. There aren't going to be any graduations, big groups, friends signing your yearbook. So, and, and no proms. And so this is a hard time. 
this corona time for seniors, whether they're graduating high school or graduating college. But high school tends to be a, a really emotional one. And I think it's hard on those, those graduates. You know, this is something that just I wasn't going to talk about, but I'm going to bring up based on what you just said. When someone is in high school, they're 17, 18, they're about to graduate, even if they're in eighth grade or they're graduating college in their late 20s, early 20s. And there's their emotions they haven't tapped into in the maturity of their emotions yet. Do you think they'll be judging their emotions? What do you think can happen to them that may hamper their own grieving process and how maybe parents can help? It's going to be really difficult because it's a genuine loss that that getting to say goodbye to friends that you've gone all the way through school with for 12 years. Those are those are important relationships. And people knew they were going to change because people go off to different schools or they go in the military or they're going to take a, a year hiatus to work or to travel and But that was leaving on their own terms. This is an imposed separation without the ability to deliver significant emotional statements and complete the relationship and then walk away. It was like a sudden death. It wasn't like a preparation for... A life unfoldment, getting preparation for leaving the goodbyes to your friends, goodbye to your teachers, goodbye to this part of your life. It was taken away quickly. I think today's youth are not inexperienced in that arena because Mm -hmm. of the number of opioid overdoses and the number of suicides and the number of attacks in schools, violent attacks, but even setting aside violent attacks, gun violence, looking simply at opioid overdoses and suicides, there are probably not many 18-year-olds without that experience. Most youth today know somebody, whether they were really close or not. They know people who have either suicided and or died of an opioid overdose. Yes, and that's on every socioeconomic level. Yeah, without a doubt. The problem is what we're taught in our development is how to acquire things. It starts with with infancy, taught how to acquire attention and affection. And then as you get a little older, how to acquire toys and, and some freedom. I want to ride my bicycle over here and how to acquire friends and grades and accept and girlfriends and boyfriends and and acceptance into a school and a career and we're taught how to acquire we aren't taught often we aren't taught how to cherish and certainly not taught how to let go of or how to lose something and how or even how to grieve The things that grievers are told that are well-intended but not helpful are staggering. You know, the the mistaken things that try and, and put a silver lining on the grief or make it not so bad or dismiss it. You know, well, your grandfather died, but he's in a better place. Yeah, the well-meaning friends and family. But I'm not in a better place. Mm -hmm. Well, at least she's not suffering. 
but I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. Oh, God needed her more than you did. Oh, so it's my fault. If I'd have only needed her more than I did, she'd still be here. Now, all of those were well-intended statements, but they usually don't make the griever feel any better. And then the tools that were given are to not feel bad. Oh, honey, don't feel bad and replace the loss. On Saturday, we'll get you a new one. If a dog runs away or a bicycle is stolen, don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll get you a new one, replace the loss. And then you get to be 11 and and you have puppy love for the first time and it ends and you walk home and mom sees that look. And the first response is, don't feel bad. There are plenty of fish in the sea which is the puppy love version of replace the loss. And then we're told to stay busy, to grieve alone, to just give it time, and to compare the loss. And I trained so many physicians in end-of-life care and palliative care and hospice. Usually they're on the more mature side, although I also work with medical students. And I'll say in front of a group of 400 mature physicians, How many of you have profound sadness over a loss that you experienced 20 or more years ago? And 95% of the room put their hands up. So if time healed all wounds, why are those hands going up? Clearly it doesn't. Right. That's true. What would you say to parents who have children who are not experiencing the end of their school year? As I said, whether they're in getting out of grade school, they're getting out of high school, they're getting out of college. What would you suggest? How how can they be with their child so they can have a natural sense of learning how to grieve or helping them become more vulnerable about what's going on? Well, it's their own experience. The parents can't role model grief over that because the parents aren't grieving. The, The graduate is. But certainly learning to simply tell the truth which is to say, I can't imagine what this must be like for you. And and so often what people say is about 150 degrees from that. And they'll say, I can imagine what this must feel like. No, you can't. You didn't go through the experiences I went through for these 12 years with this specific group of people. You can't imagine. So say that. I can't imagine what this must be like for you. And then employing the suggestion that you made in the introduction of being a heart with ears, being willing to listen without trying to minimize the grief or dismiss it or see a silver, try and point out a silver lining to really encourage the graduate to go to the very bottom of the feeling. Yes, and, and and to make friends with, if you will, to pull up a chair and put on a, a pot of tea or a pot of coffee and sit down and make friends with this feeling of sadness and disappointment and maybe resentment or anger or frustration because they're going to recur 
during their life and cultivating a relationship with those feelings so you don't get blindsided. You can kind of look and say, oh, my God, I haven't seen you for four months. I'm, I was worried about you. I'm glad you're okay. Let's have a cup of coffee. Stay for a while. We'll talk. And then you can go on your way oh, rather beautiful. than resisting the feeling. That's beautiful. And I know we had uh, mentioned, we had a conversation yesterday and I was talking about when does grieving begin? Let's say through someone who's dying, maybe the person who's dying. And again, maybe the person who doesn't even have the graduation date yet, they're at school on Zoom or whatever, doing everything online. Can you talk about the grief before the anticipation of an ending of something? Part of the way we, we address difficult feelings and emotions is to try and get out of our heart and up into our head. So certainly academics look at at something like grief and tease it apart and categorize it and describe it and look for the differences. They may say Ethiopian mothers will grieve the death of their infant child differently than South Korean mothers might. And, and I'm sure there are some differences, maybe 3% different and 97% the same. Academics are more likely to look at and focus on the differences. So grief, if grief is the normal and natural reaction to loss, then what is often called anticipatory grief is really just Grief. It is the normal and natural reaction to loss. I have hopes, dreams, and expectations. And my wife is told that she has stage four pancreatic cancer and four months to live. At that moment that that news is delivered, both she and I have experienced a set of losses. And grief is the normal and natural response to those. She has not died, but there are so many other losses along, along the journey. The ability to be playful and spontaneous and carefree and planning a future and all of that has been taken with that one communication of what the diagnosis and prognosis are. What's wrong? What is the terminal diagnosis, pancreatic cancer? How long do I have to live? Four months. And so suddenly, all of the roles, the hopes, the dreams, the expectations, the behaviors, the priorities are lost and changing in a very dramatic way. And so that's when grief begins. And whether you call it anticipatory grief, or you call it grief, it is the normal and natural reaction to loss. So I choose to call it grief. Yes. So simultaneously, you both are going through your loss with Nancy, your beloved Nancy, or the anticipatory loss of Nancy, and then Nancy's own thoughts about losing her life. What was it like to navigate through that? And you were in the business. I mean, this was your profession. Yeah, I just want to correct it. I was looking at losing Nancy and every descriptor you can put on our relationship. My lover, my best friend, my wife, 
Nancy is losing everything and everyone in her life. Everyone, family, friends, career, husband, lover, best friend, animals, her property, her gardens. She is in the midst of losing everything. And that is huge. And sometimes people forget that. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, well, she's losing her life or she's losing her family. But it's so much broader than that. And her plans and her expectations and her dreams and her sense of being in control, having competency and confidence and control over what's happening. And suddenly something's happening in her body that she has no control over. So the set of losses for the person who is dying are profound and so numerous. And sometimes when we really love them, we forget that It isn't just us that are grieving. They're grieving a potential set of losses that is so huge. Oh, I bet. And I have a question for you. As being a witness to what Nancy went through and during her end of life, her diagnosis, and this is just curiosity for me, did you see her have a more magnified sense of appreciation for her life, even though based on you knowing you and knowing her through you? But she seemed like someone who appreciated life anyway. Did it magnify even more about the the beauty of her life and how much she'll miss it? Or not who knows what happens at the end. But do you understand that question at all? I do. But no, I don't think so. I think that Nancy was such a doer and so engaged with life and filled with so much gratitude for everything she had and such love for me and the animals and her gardens and her friends and her her path and the things she did. I don't think it was magnified. There was it's also a very rapidly progressing disease that takes such a toll. There was a physical piece that that involved nausea and pain. Pancreatic cancer is is extremely painful. And she was blessed to have a husband who is a, a hospice and palliative care specialist. I'm a I'm a the hospice and palliative nurse certified in hospice and palliative care. So I knew how to manage her pain, but it didn't change the fact that there was pain there. She wanted the least amount of medication possible. She didn't want to feel medicated. There was nausea. There was weight loss. There was change in appearance. There was change in energy levels. There was change in strength and ability to to do all of just the normal things, to eat, to sleep, to walk. And yet I kept her functional ambulatory walking to within 16 hours of her death. Mm. It was not bed bound at all, which was is truly amazing. And part of that was my skill. And most of it was her determination. She was a doer and not not someone who was comfortable lying in bed. And so she pushed to be able to to stay on her feet and doing things. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Thank you. Also, here's, I'm going to ask you something that we talked about 
any regrets. We talked about a regret you had. While I know you're just because of your knowledge and experience, like you're human, you will never go beyond our humanity. Can you talk about something we talked the other day about one of the regrets regarding, you know, your own maybe shortcomings through this time? And I want to ask that for other people who may have not done it so perfectly. There were a couple. The docs gave Nancy four months to live. And because I'm a palliative care specialist, I said to myself, seven months, not four. It turned out it was two days short of seven months. We went and saw Julie Dunhill, who's an amazing young woman oncologist. And she became Nancy's doc. And and she asked Nancy, how much do you want to know? And Nancy said, I don't, but I guess I need to, to make plans. So go ahead. How long do I have? And, and Julie, would, in talking to her, said, now, people who don't get any treatment, only 4% of them live to one year. And she went on and gave other scenarios, people who do this treatment or that. All Nancy heard was one year, and she decided she had a year to live. But I think she knew she was pretending and lying to herself so that she would feel like she had more time and because she turned to me and said, do not say anything that would counter my belief that I have a year. And at a point she, she did a very mild chemotherapy and it worked for a little bit and it stopped. And she was offered the only other chemotherapy, which had a very brutal set of side effects. And she had to make the decision whether to go ahead and do that second chemo or not. And I said to her, well, you know, if you do nothing, you're looking at, I think I said something like probably 16 weeks left. And if you do that other chemo, you'll only have 17 weeks, but you'll be so debilitated the entire time. And she got so angry because she was still trying to think in terms of a year. And I had given her numbers that confirmed that seven month figure. And it just stunned her. And and it wasn't something she was emotionally prepared to deal with, even though intellectually she knew I was right. And she got very angry that I had done that when I had promised not to. And of course, I felt terrible and I was kind of showing how smart I am. And boy, that's when I'm showing how clever or how smart I am. That's usually when I get in trouble. And all I could do, we kind of cried in each other's arms and I apologized and I never did it again. Yet it took something out of her that she was holding on to this thing, this idea that that death was coming towards her, but further down the path than than was the truth. And the other thing, and, and I have a as a sober man, I have a program, a 12 step program that's 12 steps and 12 traditions and the 12th the fourth tradition in a 12-step program, or at least the couple's version, talks about each person in a relationship should be self-governing, should be autonomous, able to make their own decisions, except when it affects the other person or the couple as a whole. And I know that. And Nancy knew, knew that tradition. And we shared it with others. And 
I guess we had both passed an age threshold in the year of her diagnosis. And come November 1st, the insurance premium was due. And I carried a million dollars of life insurance on me and half a million on Nancy. And we had passed that age threshold and the, and the premiums jumped. And I kind of looked at me and I was pretty heavy back then and, and more sedentary. And I said, I'm the one who's going to die. She's young, younger and healthy and fit and she's going to live forever. And I, without talking to her, I made a decision to not pay the premium on her life insurance policy. And 30 days later, the policy expired. There were 30-day grace period, and then it expired. And 20 days after it expired, she was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And she said to me along the journey, I'm, this is so hard. But I'm so comforted knowing that you're going to have that half million dollar cushion to carry you through retirement. And I couldn't lie to her, you know, and I told her the truth. And she was so, again, so disappointed and so angry and baffled that I would have made that important a decision unilaterally without talking to her. And she said, we we live by the traditions and you've got that fourth tradition that told you that this is that you don't make this kind of decision unilaterally. Why would you do that? And the why really didn't matter. The damage was already done and I apologized, but it didn't change the fact that from that moment up until her death, she had an added burden with which she had to walk on that journey. Of, of just wondering and worrying, is Jay going to be okay financially? And, uh, and I can't undo that burden that I added. I can just do what I did, which was apologize and reassure and not do it again in other circumstances. That's the best I can do, but it doesn't change the fact that I added to the burden that she got to walk with. So thank you for sharing that. After her transition and her death, did you have to do any work around this end of life with her that you had some regrets about? Like, did you have to do any completion work? Did you feel some incompletion with her? And I'm talking about anybody who maybe didn't have a chance to apologize to someone who, you know, died urgently or maybe a divorce that happened that someone didn't want. And maybe some regrets they have later that there's some awareness they have about their own actions in a relationship. Did you have to do any kind of work on it? Yeah. And I, and I don't know that the work, the word work is very appropriate. It oh, is work. Okay. And that's the, that's the difference between grief support, going to a grief support group and going to grief recovery. It's one of the differences. There are benefits and burdens for grief support groups and their benefits and burdens to doing grief recovery. But they're very different paths. But it's interesting when we spend time with a group of people in, in whatever setting, it could be a, a vacation, it could be a church retreat, it could be a college experience, just spending three or four days even a cruise, three or four days with a group of people, and then everyone goes their own way. And you sit and think, 
or somebody like me asks, are there any feelings that came up about one of the attendees that you never communicated to them? Maybe you were so touched by their vulnerability or you just loved the way they were so conscientious about introducing everyone to everyone and making sure that everyone felt comfortable. Or maybe in the beginning, you were ready to leave, to bolt, and they made it safe for you to stay. And people will usually say, oh, yeah, that was that was Charlie or that was Sally. She was a mate. And then I'll say, well, did you tell her? No, I didn't. I, that's all. That's almost universal. That yeah. not telling people, and that in grief recovery is what we call being incomplete. So now imagine that you've spent a lifetime with somebody. Maybe it's your sibling. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your grandparent or parent or child or best friend. How many things have gone? unsaid? How many significant emotional statements have gone undelivered? And I don't just mean the, I love you so much, but also the, I am so sorry that I dot, 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 or I forgive you for never having dot, dot, dot. Or I don't know if I ever said how proud I was when you dot, 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 or how much I appreciate that you always dot, dot. There's so many significant emotional statements that go undelivered. And the longer and more intimate the relationship, the more likely it is that there are more and more of those. And in a romantic relationship, there may be ones that you intentionally never shared because they might have hurt the other person's feelings. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't seem right to unburden yourself at their expense. And that can be the same, actually, in a friendship or with a family system as well. And so I think most people have incompleteness. And relationships time. in general. Yeah. And so that's one of the powerful aspects of grief recovery is it gives us a specific set of tools, a number of steps with which we can complete relationships. Yeah. And they're small, powerful and courageous steps. And what I know when I talk to people about this, and I'm sure you experience it, it's nothing flippant. This takes vulnerability. This, This takes your own introspection about your own life. I know during this coronavirus, because I have this time because I'm homebound, but I'm also, you know, thank God for Zoom and telephones and all that. But I was by myself walking my dog. And I don't know if other people on this podcast listening have experienced this yet, but I was walking my dog and all of a sudden I got this profound sadness and grief about a conversation I had with my brother during the coronavirus. And he wasn't quite responding to me the way I wanted it to. And it was a theme throughout our relationship. So I'm 62. He's in his 68 or 67 now. And I realized that I was feeling this profound grief. And one thing I wanted to talk about between actual intellectualizing and feeling our emotions. When I started feeling 
about my brother, the sadness and grief about the brother who I never will ever have the way I think I wanted a brother instead of accepting him who he is. I was grieving the brother I, that I didn't wish for. He's a good guy, but I was just grieving my idea of what I wanted my brother to be. And he did nothing wrong. He was just being him. But I had to look at myself with that and get away from the intellectual. I was like, this is just the way he is. And I was going outside myself. What I had to do is hug my little heart and just say, acknowledge your feelings. You're feeling sad. That is okay. I don't need to put a label on it or a solution on it. It just is. And that's why I want people to know that feel your feelings. That is a strong, courageous step in our vulnerability. And I know that in our, at least for me, I wasn't taught that. And now now through all the work I've done and the experience I've learned from others, it's the most powerful and courageous act. And I tell you, the completion just blew open my life. It was a shift that was subtle but powerful. And I love that. It leads to really to lasting and meaningful transformation and and an ability to re-engage life in a way that we didn't imagine possible. Yeah, in our lives, all the the losses we have, especially if you're a baby boomer, you know, we've all had our losses. And even when you're younger, we've all experienced some kind of loss and grief. And it's part of the human condition. And what I know is that while our lives are forever changed, anyone who is grieving, even through these high school or grade school, or anyone missing out on school during this coronavirus or people working, losing their jobs or whatever, experience your life will be forever changed. But it doesn't mean that you can't get to the other side of it and to experience a fullness of life that make you even more beautiful of a person. We have to end this podcast soon, but my last question on the coronavirus, people are at home who have lost their jobs. Any thoughts about how they can walk through this, of the anticipating of like the world is going to end, that this is happening, or what's happening today? Maybe they're afraid of losing their homes and all that. Any action steps or anything, words of wisdom you can bestow? I don't know that it would help, but I mean, the, for me, one of the big ones is turning off the news. Turning off mm. the news. If you want to indulge it for 30 minutes a day at the most, you know, but the news will make you depressed and paranoid and it tends to sort of draw you in and you get obsessed with what you're watching. And and there's a country singer named Gary Allen, and his, one of his songs is Every Storm Runs Out of Rain. And I love that expression. It kind of parallels what they say in uh, the 12-step programs about this too shall pass. And my belief is this too shall pass. And I think people are going to come out of this with a with a deeper sense of connection to one another and with an appreciation, maybe a humility that didn't exist before a lot of people are going to go right back to what they were doing and their lives will get back on track and be similar to that other people will have in this time reinvented themselves because they had to or because they had the opportunity to and and they've always wanted to do something different and and suddenly find oh my god there's an opportunity to do that 
And I think that we're going to see a range of responses. But my guess, I hope, uh, it's a guess and a hope, is that we here in America and we here on our little, little round planet are going to come out the other side of this and get back on our feet and everything's going to be moving again in, in terms of society and the economy and opportunity and engagement. And we'll all get back into that maybe with just, as I said, a little more humility and appreciation and a moment's pause of, boy, we, we got it. We, we got a second chance. And so much of my life has been characterized by second chances that there's no way that I can't continue to believe in them. Yes. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you being on the show, Grief Recovery Now. And the reason why I have the now there, because I know it's possible. To me now, it doesn't mean it's going to go away like that. What I mean is like, let's start the grieving healing right here, right now. And we can get to the other side. And also, I have a little takeaway and action steps for our listeners. Call someone you care about. Tell them about some unique quality that you appreciate about them. Talk to someone. Maybe you need to have a conversation. I talked about a family member, my brother. I decided to communicate with him and told him how I felt and asked him in a very loving way. And what happened was he responded in a positive way. And I felt like I got to be vulnerable. He may not understand it, but it just felt so good. And I wasn't making him a bad brother. I just communicated because... I'm not going to give up on that or communicate to someone if you're feeling hurt feelings through whatever is happening with work or even with a boss or whatever. If you can't talk to them directly, maybe just write something down about your feelings or a little letter to him or something, him or her. But also more importantly, what feels good is to be of service for me What's helping me. I'm calling people to tell them my thoughts about them and how much I appreciate them. Maybe they have such a gut laugh that's infectious or I'll send them a funny video that I think they would appreciate and just touch people. You could do it quickly, texting, ask them to do a zoom call. You know, if you're an isolator, this is not the time to isolate. This is the time to reach out, do it when it feels like a hundred pound cell phone, do that steps because you know what? You're going to be proud of yourself, and I'm proud of you for even listening to this show. So thank you for watching our inaugural event. Jay, I so appreciate you. We're going to have you on again, and peace and blessings to all of you, and I'm signing off. This is Charlene Gorzella, Grief Recovery Now. See you next week. Thank you for joining me on our Grief Recovery Now podcast. Join me next week as we take simple and powerful small steps through story and heart healing action. You are not alone. I am here for you. Want to dive a little deeper? Need some personalized help? Have a comment? Drop me an email at charlene at griefrecovery-now.com. Contact me. I'd be so happy you did. See you next week.